Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 2011's Produced by George Martin, a made-for-TV documentary from the same BBC Arena series that gave us the Brian Epstein story, covered in a previous episode. This documentary explores the career and life of famed Beatles producer George Martin, highlighting many of the artists he has worked with via a series of personal chats and talking head interviews. Uh, And I think we should probably address a key challenge with the film up front, which is that it's very difficult, I think, to do a... Such uh, do justice to such a long and storied career in just 90 minutes. And it's impossible to strike a balance, I think, between covering all aspects of his life while still also offering a focus on what he's best known for, uh, which is obviously working with the Beatles, and then individually with just Paul. And I want to get your thoughts on that, because I think sometimes the film strikes that balance really well, and yet there is no denying that this is very much a film that chooses to include input from since-disgraced TV star and paedophile Rolf Harris. Yes. And yet still apparently doesn't want to mention Give My Regards to Broad Street. <laughs> I mean, which is the greater crime? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, I... I uh... <laughs> what a fantastic curveball question to start off with. Uh, yeah, I, I think... It, it, the documentary is perhaps slightly unbalanced, um, but also this is one of those documentaries where really its focus is here is this guy who is like now like a really nice old man and he did all these remarkable things. And here are lots of people saying 
really nice things about what this really nice man did. And that is great. There's nothing nothing wrong with that. Uh, so perhaps it is in danger of being a little bit unbalanced. And, and one of the things about these documentaries is that for all these documentaries that are, let's say, sort of Beatle adjacent, which we, we you know, we, we were trying to address every now and again, something that's not completely in and of itself Beatles, but, you know, but features Beatles in one way or another. Uh, the Brian Epstein arena documentary that you mentioned being a, a, another good example is that obviously the subjects of those documentaries, um, they have done other things in their lives other than Beatles things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of the time when you're watching them as a Beatles fan, it's really the Beatles stuff you want them to get to, you know? So it, it, it can maybe lead to you thinking this is a little bit unbalanced. But maybe that's just because of your ex- your expectations going in and what you want out of it. I, I do think it's true that once it gets through the Beatles bit of it, I remember like, uh, looking at the timer on the DVD and and to see how long was left and like once the Beatles have split up, there's about fifteen minutes left or something yeah. like that. So like his whole seventies and eighties career and everything else is kind of which dealt is with. really interesting, isn't it? Because I think that so first of all, I think there there is a film in a documentary in just George Martin and the Beatles. Yeah. Right? Clearly, oh, yeah. that would be a, a really interesting thing to yeah. to explore in a, in a film. What this film does is obviously explore up front. A little bit about George Martin's career, how he got into music and composition and studied composition, mm-hmm. um, how he got his first job at EMI, and all of the the work that he was doing as a producer up until the point he met the Beatles, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. And we'll we'll dig into that because there's loads of stuff that comes out in that period of the film where I'm like, oh, I know a lot of this stuff, and I had no idea that George Martin had a had mm. a hand in that. Yeah. And of course, that's an interesting part of the story to tell, which is, you know, what led George Martin to the point where he ended up producing the Beatles, the, you know, the, the, the greatest band of all time, if you like, right? Like, what, what path was he on that led him to that point? Yeah. Equally, what would be interesting is, where did that then take him after the Beatles split up? Yeah. And the film has no interest in exploring that. It's very much that they skimmed through, like, it skimmed through, like, five different bands and artists in the space of 30 seconds yeah. um, as a sort of a token thing of, oh, uh, this is what he did next. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm thinking he has just been the producer of, uh, and the recognised producer of the greatest band of all time, if you like. Surely that should have been a springboard for bigger and better things. And, you know, what what else did that lead to for him? So, mm. But it feels like the documentary kind of ends when he stopped working with the Beatles a little bit. Well, kind of, yeah, kind of. So, I mean, certainly it, it talks about him producing America and it talks about him producing uh, Jimmy Webb and uh, Jeff Beck uh, and sort of other artists uh, as, as that went on, Live and Let Die a little bit. But yeah, it, it, it's not terribly interested in those sort of post-Beatles things. I suppose this is one of the things about the Beatles is, is a sort of cultural entities they sort of they seem to sort of override other things you know so like you know when when you when you talk to people who aren't Beatles fans and they uh they will sort of often express annoyance with like um how ubiquitous the Beatles are you know and so and I appreciate that completely you know um I, I get that it's a bit dull to have someone like banging on about this is the greatest band of all time and uh, there are no counter arguments to that. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very it's, interesting point to make on this podcast, by the way. Very interesting. <laughs> Let, let's explore that more. You know, <laughs> and, and but I think 
I think what people get annoyed about is that sort of cultural ubiquity in a way. And I suppose that's kind of what happens in documentaries like this. Like because this guy, uh, like the most famous thing he did was uh, be like the main producer for the greatest band of all time. Uh, but this documentary is not per se only about that that, mm. uh, that part of his work. However, naturally, maybe just in the edit, that's how it ends up being. Yeah, there's more Beatles stuff, and then the rest of it is kind of you know dealt with, uh, dealt with, given fairly short shrift afterwards, I suppose. But I think I was left thinking. You know, there is a caption that comes up when he talks about opening his studio, Air Studios in Montserrat. Yeah. There's a caption that comes up saying that, uh, you know, from this point, George Martin worked with the likes of, and they mention the police, Stevie Wonder, uh, Michael Jackson, I think, at one point. Uh, Elton John, certainly. Oh, Elton John, I don't certainly. think Michael Jackson. Did I make that up? I might have made that up. Uh, but then there were, there were a bunch of names there which don't get mentioned again. And I was yeah. quite, I was left wondering, well, what did, what work did he do with those big names? Yeah. And then what, it, what the film then does is to, to help illustrate that point. They play every little thing she does is magic yeah. uh, by the police, and that is the one instance I can think of in the film where it comes up every little thing she does is magic by the police, and it says produced by someone else. Yes, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so like, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you play the the bit that George Martin actually did? Well, well, I so I think probably the reason they did that is because he didn't produce it, but it was just done at his studio. I, right. I think that's probably the, the distinction oh, they were trying to make. Because right. I, I, okay. I, I noticed that. that credit come up. And I think, yeah. I think it may have been because the way they were talking about it might have given the impression that he did produce yes. it. But they wanted to make clear that actually it was someone else's work. Okay, that, that makes sense. So it was at his studio, but it was a different producer working on that record. Yeah, so yeah. I, that so, makes sense. Uh, so I think certainly in Elton John's autobiography, he talks about recording at Montserrat in the 80s. I think it was in the mm. 80s. And I forget which album it is, but there's... One or two of those big hits in the eighties, maybe I'm still standing, or one from that era, I forget, that were done at, done out in Montserrat. Right. Um, but I don't think it was George Martin who produced them. I'm not. Okay. I, I think actually his role in Montserrat was mainly just to be the guy who owned the studio. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't know specifically how much production he did out there, but certainly like he and Paul worked worked on stuff in Montserrat. I think for the Tug of War album. Mm. Um, and yeah, like and that, it, it sort of mentions Stevie Wonder. So like Stevie Wonder appeared on that album as well. Uh, so yeah, I think I think maybe that that's where that came from. I mean, this is the point where I say that if I'm left asking these questions, um, then the film may have not done a very good job of of clarifying yeah. um, those points. Which in essence is a way of me saying that the film is at fault and not me for, <laughs> for misunderstanding. <laughs> how that information was presented to me. Yeah, it's definitely the film's fault, not yours. <laughs> uh, although I do like the idea that the film was saying, oh, George Martin worked with Stevie Wonder and also Paul McCartney, but actually it might have been just the same song. It may have been. It may have been. I'm not completely sure, to be honest. But yeah, it, it, it's possible that that is the case, yeah. <laughs> so um, in terms of getting that, that balance right, do you think the film does a good job of representing uh, his contribution to... To, to all of those pieces of work as well as the Beatles. Uh, yes, uh, so I think I think what it does a very good job of is talking about the comedy production work that he initially did at Parlophone. So before uh, the Beatles sort of came into his orbit, he was mainly a sort of uh, audio comedy producer, working with uh, you know the Goons, uh, Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, people like that. He's also you know it reminded me that. When I, when I was a kid, one of the 
cassettes we had in the car was um, the uh, At the Drop of a Hat, the review by Flanders and Swan from sometime in the 50s. Um, that was something that I just knew off by heart. And um, I found it on vinyl in a secondhand shop a few years ago and bought it and took it home and played it, played it and found that I still knew it off by heart. And I turned it over and it said produced by George Martin, which I'd had no idea. But you still knew it off by heart, even from the 50s. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, I'm older than I look. <laughs> uh, but so what it does a really good job of is emphasizing his contributions to to that. You know, yeah, so it, like it's, it, 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 he makes the point in the documentary when he's talking about it that uh, recording comedy is a hard job. Like it's it, it's laborious. Like you have to. you have to come up with a script and you have to make sure the script works and you have to edit the script and then you have to like produce the the people actually recording the thing. Mm -hmm. And he said that not that recording pop music is easy, but I think I I get the impression that he was very much ready to find the the Beatles as like creative collaborators. I think he was really ready to dive into that in a way where he could sort of be creative in, in a way that was, a bit less sort of painstaking, if you like. And certainly there were definitely things he produced for the Beatles that were painstaking, you know, Strawberry Fields and being for the benefit of Mr. Kite being like sort of obvious examples of where he really, really had to, you know, it was a bit of a slog to sort of get the uh, result at the end of the day. But But I think he, in general, really, really enjoyed the opportunity to get in a studio with these, uh, with these boys and sort of give his sort of creative input w- without the sort of slog of like having a pre-prepared script and things mm. like that and having to work from that, you know? And, and I guess that's, you know, without wanting to sound like I'm, I, I don't want to sound like I'm doing it, um, him a disservice here, but I think one of the things that I felt was lacking in the documentary was exactly what contributions he was making at that point uh, in his career. So, when he talks about it, it's difficult, it's a difficult job to produce comedy shows where you have to get the right scripts in place and stuff. I don't know whether the film presents his role in that as doing anything other than just capturing that work on record. Like I, I, I'm not left with an understanding of what contribution he has made to finalizing that script yeah. to, to refining the, the comedy elements of that film and making it as good as it can be before it then gets recorded. I'm kind of, I, I feel like one, I wonder whether or not the film gives a bit of a simplistic view of the role of a producer yeah. um, because it kind of just gives me an impression that he just needs to make sure everything was in place so that he could flick the record switch. Yeah. Which obviously is a, you know, um, huge downgrade from all the work that he obviously would have done in that. I'm just not really left with an understanding of what that work was. Yeah, true. I I wonder whether it is the, whether it is like the documentary has to take a certain approach and it's, it's sort of broad brush or very specific. Mm. So, you know, you think about things like uh, it's sort of a VH1 classic albums or something where, where it's always like, here is specifically how we recorded this thing. I am sitting at this mixing desk 50 years after we recorded this album and I am like fading this thing up to show you exactly what we did at this point and stuff like that. Yeah. It's very technical and that is what the audience wants from that. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a BBC Arena documentary. Uh, it's made for a 
sort of highbrow audience, if you like. You know, mm. this is sort of the sort of audience who is watching arts uh, programs on BBC Two, or it might have been BBC Four by the time this came. When did this come out? Twenty twelve. Uh, yeah, twenty twelve. It was broadcast, I think. Yeah. So I mean, this is I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that's on BBC Four now. I couldn't tell you if BBC Four existed in twenty twelve, but you know, it's it, yeah, it's yeah. exactly that kind of thing. So, like, you could make the case that actually the audience would have appreciated a bit more of that detail. Mm. Um, and I agree with you. I know what you mean. It could, it could have done with a bit more. It, it, it's one of those ones, actually, where I kind of thought, oh, you could have stuck another 15 minutes on this. Yes, I agree. Just yeah. for, like, in terms of length, it could have borne it for sure because uh, it's quite uh, pleasant and quite sort of amiable. Like, you know, you didn't, you weren't, certainly weren't, not even getting close to outstaying its welcome. Uh, and actually, yes, a bit, a bit more of that detail. Not really, really sort of geeky, specific music or studio detail, you know. Yeah, but, just, yeah. but yeah, just a bit more about that role and what it involves is m- maybe what it was lacking a little bit. I think that's that the difference between um, when we talk about feature films uh, and this, where filmmakers for feature films will probably have a little bit more flexibility with their runtime, mm-hmm. whereas this is, as a BBC documentary series, is clearly made to order yeah. uh, to a certain degree to yeah. fit with a certain format and time time frame. The bits that I'm interested in, and by no means should it mean that that's, this is the most important bit, but the bits that I'm interested in this well, story... Well, you're a licensed VPA, so you know, <laughs> they, should, they should do exactly what you want, right? <laughs> But the bits I am interested in uh, are how George would make uh, tangible contributions to uh, the work that he is producing mm. in a way that I can then be like, oh, like that was that was George's input, yeah, you know, as opposed to from a technical point of view, like I I, I like the idea of uh, I, I like understanding the creative input that he has had and that extends to uh his role with the beatles because yeah. i think that his role as beatles producer obviously there's a whole load of work that goes into that role that i probably don't have the skill set to understand to wrap my head around exactly what that means and why that's important yeah. but the bits that i can cling to are things like this bit in this song was George. Mm. Like he played the solo in, in my life for, yeah. you know, this, uh, the way this, it, there's a, there's an example that the film gives where he was the one to suggest to Paul that can't buy me love should start with a refrain from the chorus yeah. before they go into the verse, which, yeah. I, which I'd actually never heard before. I didn't realize that mm. I could have done with a load more of that because I think there were loads of examples that I've heard previously, uh, about how George has really put a stamp on a lot of these songs that we now consider to be iconic and i feel like showcasing his role in those a bit more would have been quite instrumental in a documentary like this that is celebrating his work in his life yeah but yeah. actually i found a lot of that quite well i found a lot of that missing yeah and actually um for, for someone like george who um uh, like certainly when it came to his contributions to Beatles records like he was sort of fairly modest about it but the ones that he would talk about quite a lot which sort of notably absent from this film interestingly mm-hmm. uh the main one being Strawberry Fields Forever where yeah. it, it effectively what he ended up was uh, with was um two or three different parts of the same song which were in different keys and John Lennon basically said to him well you figure it out 
and and he did by like by speeding different bits up and you know and getting them into the same pitch and and the same rhythm uh it, which is amazing given the technology available to him uh so that that story is like fairly well known fairly well worn you might argue and, and like i'm not saying I, I want the sort of old anecdotes to be repeated but you would expect in, yeah, in you, this, you feel like they're, they're for a be the standard, audience. and yeah, then everything yeah. else is a bonus. But actually, yeah, yeah. it was a it was good. I think for me to 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 hear things that I hadn't heard before. Yeah, but it felt strange that some of those bigger contributions that have become standards because of their importance yeah. weren't brought into this. Yeah, and, and you know, so we we also watched some of the extras on the DVD, and so there's one where George is talking to Howard Goodall, and he, and he talks about. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which is another one where, it, like, famously, John basically said to him, "I want it to sound like a fairground. You, you yeah. figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. I'll be back on Monday. You know, yeah. you figure it out. I want to out. smell the sawdust. Right, right. It, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, because I read I mean, years and years ago, I read, I think, yeah, it was George's book that had the clanging title "All You Need Is Ears." The uh, it was about the recording of Sergeant Pepper specifically. Maybe, uh, maybe that is not the book I'm thinking of. There was a book that he wrote that was specifically about the recording of Sergeant Pepper, and and that is absolutely full of full of all those anecdotes. And it goes mm. into a lot of detail from my memory of the recording of being for the benefit of Mister Kite and like how he got those specific sounds. That stuff is really interesting, and that's the kind of thing you kind of expect to be in here. Yeah, he and Howard Goodall mention it a bit in the in the extras, which are, are bits that were sort of effectively cut from the film. And yeah, you, you'd expect a bit more of that detail. There's a bit about Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, uh, I think there's 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 a part of the reason why some of this detail is missing is because on the whole, I get the impression that George Martin is just incredibly modest about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, um, he talks about the score to yesterday, and he says, "Oh, this is quite a a naive score," and he has it. He says, "This is." He talks about it being quite a naive score, and it's you know he said, but the the idea of the song is its simplicity, and yeah. so he kind of downplays his role in having written that score and introduced strings to the Beatles' uh, music for the first time. Yes, it shouldn't go without saying that he's saying that whilst pointing at the score, having framed it on his wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. Um, and he talks in a similar in a similar way about the strings in Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby. And that interview of Howard Goodall, who goes into very, very geeky detail about music theory that is way over my head, yeah. um, talking about sort of um, false relationships to Tudor music and lots of sort of terminology that I hadn't uh, heard before. And you kind of get the impression that George is kind of responding to that as a, it's like, yeah, you know, that's just the way it was. Or that was actually, that was all Paul. First of all, he's very quick to not claim credit for a loss of that work and, and to make sure that everyone is aware that uh, a lot of those songs and examples that Howard Goodall gave, that was, that was all Paul who did that. Yeah. But he also, um, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about that relationship in the music and he obviously understands it because he comes from a music and, uh, and, and a background in composition. But he kind of just brushes it aside a little bit, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's really refreshing to watch a Beatles documentary. We don't get to see many Beatles documentaries where there is someone who isn't just trying to claim credit for everything. You know, <laughs> yeah, because like, that's the opposite. In yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I do wonder whether or not some of those contributions just sort of fall under the, the radar a little bit just because he's the kind of person that doesn't want to uh, 
boast or, or you know, brag uh, about how much input he's had into these massively iconic songs? Well, well, yes and no, because there are certain hints in it that George Martin was not a man entirely free of ego. Mm. It's not a criticism of him. It's perfectly reasonable for someone of his achievements to have a bit of an ego about them. Uh, so one of which is where he sort of talks about his rivalry with Norrie Paramore, who was yes. another A&R man at EMI who sort of had signed Cliff Richard and was the guy having hits. And he was always like it's well documented that he felt a bit of competition with Nori Paramore, and you would in that in that kind of professional setting. And you know, there's a, a funny story sort of later on that like Giles Martin, Giles is is sort of interviewing George in the documentary, teases out of him uh, where where he's talking about. I think he, he sort of finally it won some sort of award for being the producer who had the most number ones, and he's and he's finally beaten Nori Paramore. And, you know, he said to Giles, well, you know, I shouldn't think Norrie's going to shouldn't think Norrie's going to beat me now, despite the fact that Norrie Paramore had been dead for a couple of years at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, the, but the, the other thing that really struck me is like uh, when he's talking about Let It Be, the Let It Be sessions mm. that became the Let It Be album. Of course, this documentary comes out in 2012. So we're sort of 10 years or so before the release of the Get Back documentary, which obviously just sort of recontextualized that period and uh, the sessions for that album. So George is is saying in this uh, in this documentary that um he was put out when Phil Spector was sort of given the the, the tapes to produce and then um the credit on it said produced by Phil Spector. Um and he said, "Well, can I have overproduced by <laughs> by Phil Spector, <laughs> but you know, original sessions produced by George Martin." Now that we have seen Get Back, uh, if, if if you take uh, what the footage we see in Get Back as sort of decent enough evidence, I know it doesn't cover the entire period, mm. I think it's probably more reasonable to say that Glyn Johns mainly produced those sessions. Yeah, George, I, I think so, yeah. George, George actually, like one of the things about Get Back was that George Martin was involved more than I thought he'd been. Like yeah. he, he was there more than I thought. And he was certainly overseeing things. And he was sort of coming in and giving... Glenn John's pointers and things mm. like that. But I don't think he was producing those sessions. Now, I, 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 so I'm not saying that like George in this documentary is sort of making it up. And it may be like, you know, as we see the, the big thing about the Get Back documentary, as opposed to what we thought of Let It Be before that, is that everyone involved remembers it in a very, in a yeah. very different way to how... It actually was, or at least to how uh, Get Back indicated that it was. So, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that George has sort of misremembered, or, or at least he sort of put himself at the center of that a bit more than was actually the case. So, so, it, it, so certainly, like he, uh, he is a man, or sorry, he was a man who had, who seemed to have the sort of um, uh, the instinct to downplay his own his own achievements in that sort of quite British way. Sort of men of his generation were not very comfortable sort of trumpeting their own achievements. But I think there were also bits where he maybe sort of overplayed his his involvement in things. You're right. It puzzled me a little bit when George Martin was talking about that. And I had heard that overproduced by Phil Spector gag before. Yeah. Um, but it did make give me pause to think, I don't really remember him doing enough to claim that credit yeah. <laughs> in the first point. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting that he would, um, he, he would make that suggestion. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, I don't know how you felt about this, but um, I was a little bit taken aback in the first like five, ten minutes of the film because it seemed to jump around a bit at the start. And I, and I felt that kind of little bit all the way through the film. So right at the start, when you're watching a film called Produced by George Martin, you know, these films tend to start with a bit of an overview of his achievements throughout his career, and then it'll take you right back to the start of how he set out upon that journey uh, into his profession. This film starts with him driving down the road with his wife and um, them telling the story of how they met, which was that uh, Judy was a secretary at EMI when George got his job there. Yeah. So they talk a little bit about that. Then they go back to the start of George's life and how he got into uh, his career as a producer. Mm. Um, And it it seemed like a strange starting off point for me. It's almost like, you know, you you start off that way if, if one of the key themes of your film is going to be how George and Judy uh, and their love has endured the, you know, 50 odd years since they first met but it doesn't it doesn't really do that it was just a sort of an interesting anecdote that starts the film and then it and then it goes on to george's life and there are a few things throughout the film where i feel like oh you're you kind of jumped into this other sort of area you know like half of you talking about george working with the beatles it suddenly talks about his hearing issues yeah and then it cuts to him at like a sort of a university seminar thing talking about the, uh, how he discovered he had uh, hearing difficulties, yeah. um, which is something that happened at a later date. And then it comes back again to the Beatles. And it, it, it just seems a little bit incoherent in terms of, you know, not in, incoherent as in you, I couldn't follow it, but it, it wasn't very cohesive in terms of a narrative uh, and, and at what point things happened and when. Yeah, it skips around a lot, certainly. It's it's not really picking a narrative and sticking to it. It's kind of jumping around all over the place, really. Yeah, and there's there's another bit about that which I 
I don't know if you feel it this way, and I don't, I can't really quite put my finger on why it seems strange to me. But the film starts with um, with Giles Martin sort of asking questions to his dad on their sofa. Yeah. And then after about 15 minutes or so, um, the next question is being asked by Michael Palin in, uh, I don't know, in some sort of venue. Yeah. Um, and then later on, it's Ringo talking to George, and then later on, it's Paul talking to George. And, yeah. and I was trying to, I, I thought, oh, it, it seemed to jump between interviews and I, and I don't know if it's because normally there's someone who leads on this kind of documentary mm. or not and there's like a a person who is the driving uh interviewer yeah even, like even if they're unseen a lot yes time, exactly but yeah, yeah. yeah but it, it just seemed a little bit like lots of chats have taken place and they've edited it together into one sort of narrative yeah um and it, and also like as part of that was the, the thing about having like one interviewer is normally you would you, you know that interview would go to George Martin's house and uh, question him, and then maybe he would then take him or be present uh, or not when George Martin is visiting things like his childhood home, mm. uh, as he does here in Drayton Park and stuff. But because he seemed to have lots of chats with lots of different people, I couldn't help get the impression that they just made George Martin go around lots of people's houses <laughs> <laughs> to be the subject of his own documentary. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like he had to get on the, the bus a lot. To, <laughs> <laughs> like, are you with Ringo now? Like, Ringo can't make it here, so do you, do you mind just going back over to him again? Like, right, making, right. like, a 45-minute journey. To, right, right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just, I just couldn't help but think that George Martin was had to be put out by in some way in order to make this work. Yeah, well, I mean, he'd, he'd have had a free bus travel by yeah, that point. So, you know, well, so, yeah, you know, he was probably fine. And also just a very nice, you know, amiable sort I'm sure of he would have been fine. You do like, get the impression oh, he would have been, yeah. wouldn't want to put anyone out. No, so exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly that. But, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it felt like it was, um, it, it felt like there was a, it was a, a lot of, Let's capture what we can, and then we'll make it work in the edit. And then, yeah. because of that, in the edit, what what we get is a little bit of oh, now George is here talking to this person instead. Yeah. When actually, it follows on from the point he was making in the previous section. Yeah. So I think um, the bits where he is talking to Paul and he is talking to Ringo, which is separate, um, they feel a bit uh, less like interviews and more like conversations. The Michael Palin bit, they are talking specifically about his work with the goons and, you know, the sort of audio comedy he recorded. So obviously that kind of makes sense in context. Actually, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you sort of it, it, it that you sort of equate those things with the Giles Martin bit, because I hadn't really thought of it in that sense. But you're absolutely right. There, there is no reason for me to have thought of those things differently. Um, I kind of felt more of uh, the bit where... Giles is talking to him on the sofa as that was sort of more the sort of main interview that drove the whole thing. But actually thinking about it in terms of its screen time, that ten, uh, documentaries of this nature, if you've got like this guy's son, uh, you know, is, is effectively interviewing his father, especially given that Giles, you know, is, is qualified to talk about, you know, uh, music production you would have thought that usually that would be a sort of more of a framing device for the whole documentary. In a similar way to Mary McCartney interviewing Paul for Wingspan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just sort of, you know, less inappropriate. In, in <laughs> <way>. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah. Like a, a framing device for the whole thing, you know, and you, and you might even, 
put Giles a bit more sort of front and center as like the main narrator and and things that you know and things like that. Well, one way where it does seem to it would be sort of trying to make the narrative a bit more cohesive is like the use of audio comedy that George produced uh, seems to come back as a sort of a theme that they're sort of using over lots of clips. So again, you know, this is one of those documentaries where it, it sort of needs uh, needs sound to sort of play over clips. Often with documentaries, it's the other way around. Like they've got a lot of audio and they yeah. need to they need like pictures to. Um, to put over it, but they seem to be sort of coming back to this as a theme, which is nice because you know it it, it is obviously it's not it's not like too Beatle heavy, you know. So it would be it'd be easier just to come back to sort of Beatles songs because they they do have the rights for Beatles songs on this. They are using them over it, um, but actually they're sort of stressing his work as a comedy producer. So it keeps on coming back to sort of Peter Sellers stuff that he's done. In particular, and um, it really reminded me actually that like like years and years, this is a bit of a tangent, and I apologise, but like y- years and years ago, there was a pub I used to go to in London, and in the gents' toilets, they would play BBC audio comedy, like mm. uh, like the Goon Show and, right. and things like that. So you know, up until the eighties, and you had, and and I I was trying the other night with a friend of mine to r- remember the name of this pub, and I and I can't. Uh, so if you're listening to this <laughs> if you're listening to this and you, know, and you know there's a pub somewhere in sort of centralish london where the the uh, the toilets were in the basement i remember centralish you say the Cent- toilets in the basement exactly. right okay i mean we've got to be able to narrow this down yeah yeah exactly you know i'm sure like you know using the same uh, techniques as the true crime podcast you know <laughs> surely surely we can narrow this down but yeah if anyone knows the name of the pub I'm thinking of that used to play, or maybe still does play, audio comedy in the gents' toilets. Please tweet us. It's been driving me mad. I mean, tweet him. I don't. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with not knowing. Yeah, no, that's fair. Don't, don't, don't tweet Matt. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> The, 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 uh, one of the things I actually really liked about that use of that uh, those comedy recordings, though, was it made me realise what a good sketch it is to just have someone dryly recite lyrics. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> you've got Peter Sellers doing that twice in, in this film. Yes. Uh, one with Can't Buy Me Love, and I think the other one was Hard Day's Night, yeah. when he's dressed almost in, like, Shakespearean clothing, sitting on a throne uh, and stuff, and, mm. and just being able to sort of deliver these sort of smirky grinning uh lines a bit sultry yeah, yeah. um it's just brilliant it's just uh, that's really it's just that's just a great comedy conceit yeah and and also sort of taking the sting out of them in a way that was quite subversive so you yeah. know like, like, i suppose you know in in context at that time the beatles w- would have been seen as like quite shocking saying yeah 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 was quite shocking and quite a, you know sort of quite an uncouth americanism and sort of taking that and putting it reframing it in the context of a sort of dry shakespearean actor yes uh, reciting it is is really funny and a very good comic conceit obviously i love and the things you look for as a beatles fan are those moments where you have ringo and paul come in and talk to to george um but uh, I think it's in my nature to pick up on stuff that, <laughs> that I'm like, really, is that okay to you to say? Because, yeah. like, because there was a love, there was there were lovely moments in both of those um, sets of interviews. For example, I'll give you a for example with yep. uh, with Ringo. George talks about how during the war, the the, the house five doors down from him, 
uh, it obviously had a bomb dropped in it, or had it had disappeared, and the house next to it, half of it was missing, and you could just see a bath hanging out, um, still attached by its pipes. Mm. Ringo's reaction to that was, "Oh, you had a bath, did you? I was a, uh, I didn't have a bath. You must have been rich." <laughs> And yeah, I was like, yeah, 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 how does yeah. Ringo make himself out to be the victim yeah. <laughs> when George is telling a story about being like in a war-torn street? He did seem to make it a bit of a competition as to who was in the worst oh, a l- a situation. Bit. But actually, I mean, the, 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 reveal, the sort of two like quite revealing things about that exchange uh, were that... Beatles always kind of saw George as a bit of an authority figure. He was, mm. it was a bit, he was older. He was sort of maybe 10, 15 years older, something like that. And he was posh as far as they were concerned. And actually, one of the interesting things about this film is they talk a bit how like his, his upbringing was certainly more humble. He was sort of more, uh, more of a, a cockney as like Charles Martin puts it. And mm. then like deliberately sort of trained himself at the age of 16 to speak in more of a sort of proper BBC manner. voice, yeah. yeah, the sort of received pronunciation kind of thing, which is which is very interesting. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, there was always that sort of like good natured uh, class, not warfare, but you know, just you know, between the Beatles and George Martin, you know, is, is part of the reason why they worked so well together. The yeah, sort of, uh, sort of opposites they were. Um, the other thing is that Ringo makes the comments like, "Oh, we never had a bath." And George says, "Really, you must you must have been filthy." Like, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and you know, and and that is nice actually. But they have a nice little uh, joke about it. And actually, the fact that he had a sense of humour was something that they found appealing. And particularly when they knew that he'd worked on like the Goons records, which you know they'd grown up listening to on the radio. But and also another anecdote that you'd expect that to get told that doesn't get told is the uh, George Harrison saying, well, I don't like your tie for a start, uh, which is an anecdote so well worn. It now has its own Twitter account. Which is excellent, by the way, should, everyone should follow it. And that, that it gets a bit of an airing in the extras, of the documentary, but it's not in the main thing. But, but I mean, that, that is quite key in terms of their relationship. It's sort of tempting to say in that it sort of, it relaxed everyone uh, made them realise they could cheek him a bit, uh, mm. and that the sort of class divide that they perceived between the two of them, between the Beatles and George, uh, w- was uh, something that could be bridged with humour. Um, yes, that's and, a good way of putting it. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually quite liked as well. Um, there were there were lots of nice moments with his interviews with Paul. Yeah, not interviews, are they? They're chats, really. The re- reminiscences are being captured on on camera. Yeah, but um. There, there's a, there are a few nice moments in that. One which is that Paul mentions a record that he had, uh, and he said, "Oh, I used to carry that around with me, and it was one that was produced by George." And George seemed surprised by that. Mm. Like all the time they spent together, it doesn't seem like he was aware of that happening, and he was very much, "Oh, did you?" Like he was, you know, he was surprised by that. Yeah. Um, which I thought was, thought was a, a nice sort of uh, moment to bring into that. But there are there there are lots of sort of. Uh, interesting moments i think in in that section of the film such as when uh they play the both of them a snippet uh of the beatles talking in the microphone and trying to get george martin to contribute and george is is completely baffled and he's like i don't know what this is like when did that happen Mm. and and paul does that thing where it's like um 
Oh, I think you'll find that's the the Beatles fan club Christmas record. Yeah. Uh, And George, like, you you can visibly see him be like, oh, yeah, of course, that was a thing Mm. as well. Like, he hadn't, he genuinely hadn't remembered that that was was a thing. And it was was, was really interesting that he was, you you know, there's a, and maybe you wouldn't unless you were like a hardcore Beatles fan. Most people aren't aware of those fan club recordings, right? But but it just, it was just nice to have that sort of, to see them too. (laughs) Like, be reminded of this thing that they literally would have not prepared for at all and just recorded off the cuff spontaneously and yeah. not thought about much since yeah you know, yeah i think with those christmas uh, fan club recordings i think sort of every october or november or so they would literally just find half an hour of studio time or whatever yeah. it was and just busk it you know and that was it and so yeah, you can imagine that George might have forgotten that because as far yeah. as he was concerned, it was just something that he'd just turn the tapes on and let them go ahead and do. Yeah, of course. And and, and it's interesting as well that then you start to get an impression of at what point in that part of the Beatles' career George had involvement in and actually how separate that was to everything else the Beatles had on at the time. Mm. Because that is for the fan club thing, which George probably you know wouldn't have been as invested in, Yeah, clearly, right? Yeah. Um, and he he mentions, you know, so Paul makes the point about how they had to do two songs in three hours. So they, you know, uh, when they were recording albums and stuff, which I've heard a lot. You know, they obviously they they've had to record in a short space of time, which meant they had to come prepared and yeah. um, and stuff. What I hadn't heard before was George's response to that and explanation, which was that he was only given like an afternoon at a time to mm. record them. You yeah. know, this this idea of of him saying, I need time with the studio with the lads and Brian saying, well, I can give you next Friday afternoon, you know, and <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. and actually, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. But I never heard that side of that story before. Yeah. It, it's actually interesting to hear it from that point of view, isn't it? And, yeah. and you sort of get the impression that actually there was almost a, a, a tension between those two things, i.e. Uh, the Beatles commitments as stars and uh, their commitments as musicians, i.e. Uh, producing the output that would make them stars whereby they were just the idea i think broadly speaking emi wanted from them two albums a year and however many singles a year three or four singles a year which it was tended for the most part to be songs that were not on the albums um so it's, it's a lot to like put out but this is also you know you think around sort of 64 65 this is also at the same time as they are constantly touring and doing interviews and maybe radio sessions and things like that and making a feature film each year as well. Yeah. Um, it's an enormous amount of work. And I suppose it's interesting that sort of George was sort of the stuff that, I mean, the reason we're sitting here now is, you know, because of the, the it's because of the music, you know, it's why it's why it's the starting point for why everyone loves the Beatles. And it's interesting that sort of uh, George had to kind of like fight <laughs> for a bit of extra time yeah to sort of you know to get more to get a bit more time to sort of make make the music better you know and you know i mean how good would it have been if he if he'd got more time you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. would it have been even better an extra you know? half an hour now yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what's also nice about chat with paul is um i mean it's just filled with great stuff actually like is this is what's so nice about a documentary like this where you have we we get together paul and george in, in a space and just in a very short space of time there's lots of fun things that come out of that chat. Mm. I like them reminiscing over a photo that had been taken from 1964, uh, where Brian Epstein uh, has a chamber pot on his head. 
Yeah. I think George Martin very sort of politely says that it all was a bit naughty, wasn't it? <laughs> and I, I think they give the gist that the food apparently was all phallically shaped. <laughs> yeah. And at first of all, I mean, I was just amazed that they could remember it at all like yeah, on that photo, yeah. which is just brilliant. Well, there, but there is, I think there is a specific reason why they can remember it because I think they say it's in Paris. Yes, right, yes. And and, and in Paris in early 1964 is, I think, where the news first came through that they were number one in America. Oh, right, okay, and I yeah. Think, and I think that's, uh, and so from that okay. point, and that's when they then went on to go and do, you know, what they always say is like, well, we always said we're not going to America until we're number one. Yes, whether okay. That's, whether that's entirely true or not, we're not, not completely sure. But that, that seems to have been the spur for them to like go on uh, you know, so like the, those nights were ones that they would re- remember. Like they have talked about um, finding that out in Paris and like celebrating quite wildly. So it may be yeah. that uh, the reason they remember that uh, over and above the fact that like one of them like had a chamber pot on his head, which, is quite, which is quite memorable. And, and they're eating penis shaped food. But yes. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I suppose these things do make for a memorable <laughs> I mean, night. Yeah, I mean, added up, it probably makes for a memorable night, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> For me, just having a chamber pot in my head makes for a memorable <laughs> night. But... I remember every time you've done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um... But you've forgotten all the times I was number one in America. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lovely moment in that as well, not to keep going on about the same section, but where, where George presents Paul with a photo and says, you know, it's a photo of George and, and his wife Judy and saying, do you remember where that was taken? And Paul takes one look at it and it's just a, it's just a really simple I think it's there on the back of a pickup truck or something. Mm. It's a really simple black and white photo. Yeah. And Paul immediately says, oh, did Linda take this? Uh, and Jules says, yes, yes, she did. And he said, oh, yeah, I thought it looked like her work. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, like, that's that's really sweet. Yes. That, that he he could see a photo of just two people. Like, it just looked like any photo that anybody would take of two people. But yeah. Paul being so close to to Linda and her work was able to identify something in it mm. that made him recognize that photographer. And I just thought, what a nice, nice thing to sort of, to think about. Yeah. You know, that, that there are the hallmarks within Linda's work as a photographer that even in a simple photo like that, Paul was instantly pe- able to pick up on it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was really nice that I thought, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it just sort of uh, emphasized I mean, you know, it's no, it's no secret how close Paul and Linda were and how much in love they were. But yes, being able to recognise her, her work, just a, a, a photograph she took that, like, to my eyes, didn't look particularly remarkable, but he could see, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks like her style. And it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. it's nice. It was nice to see that, you know. Um, I, th- I think there's there's something in, um, you can see in the interactions that George has with Paul and Ringo in these exchanges where, because uh, they're they're, talk, they're talking about the, Ringo makes a joke about sort of like being on drugs or something like that, you know, and it's and it's one of those times that sort of, that reminds you of the sort of straightness, and, and in particular the Britishness that George Martin is sort of so emblematic of. And actually, it, and so there's a lot in this film, by the way, in terms of the way his life is framed at the time. Uh, I mean, he lives in just the most English country village you could possibly imagine, you know, and he, he and his wife, he and Judy do this thing where they sort of open up their garden uh, for charity once a year. And, you know, they seem to do like a little raffle or a fete or something like that, and <laughs> yeah. they, you know, and it's it's just like really, really wonderfully British, the whole thing. Um, and and it reminds you that uh, Howard Goodall actually makes 
the point in one of the outtakes that he the, when he's making those specific points about uh, the uh, the Beatles music uh, that he's always found it particularly British and it's interesting that he mentions that because there is something very very British about the Beatles as as George points out in it you know he says to Howard Goodall well they were British you know yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Which, which by the way is <laughs> is very dryly funny yes and another example of the sense of humor that would have appealed to them I think yeah definitely um, but as I mentioned earlier about the sort of class difference between them, there's a Britishness to George Martin that I think would have a, a, a appealed to them as something that they could be cheeky about and subvert. But also a, a lot of their music is about sort of uh, subverting uh, Britishness, you know. So, I mean, if you think about things like uh, When I'm 64, uh, which is obviously sort of a musical pastiche until you get into the middle eight where it kind of drops down into that into that minor chord and, and all gets a bit sort of eerie and yeah. almost disturbing. Exactly the same thing with Penny Lane, the sort of drop from major to minor that you get at the, at the end of, you know, and the fireman rushes in, you know, and it drops from a B major to B minor. And the, and the whole thing immediately, it is uh, painted this picture of sort of uh, perfect idyllic uh, suburban Englishness, but then that change to a minor chord just sort of makes you think, oh, everything, everything here is not quite as it should mm. be. What's what's going on here? I feel a little bit unsettled in some way. Um, and I think that having George Martin around as that sort of uh, seemingly just being as a sort of totem of like sort of perfect Englishness just sort of gave them a counterpoint in in a way. It's it's hard to describe exactly, but I, yeah, I think they just sort of gave them something to to play off in a way. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, also, I mean, he he himself was m- making lots of key contributions that were sort of really creative, and and you know, he talks in this about sort of uh, figuring out you know sort of backwards tapes and things, you know, on rain, you know, that sort of his idea, and he says, you know, after that, like, they wanted everything backwards. You know? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, what's really interesting though about him, that you definitely get the um, idea that he is this quintessentially English person. Yeah. Uh, it comes up again and again throughout the documentary. It does make me wonder whether or not one of the reasons why the documentary can feel a little bit unfocused in places is because there isn't this clear, like, sensationalised narrative to to cling to. You know, like, in the same way that the Brian Epstein story, as a uh, previous Arena Doc series episode, was able to, to sort of dig into this sort of sordid part of his past or mm. you know the outside of the Beatles there's no inkling of that at all with George like no. he is and, and, and he even says by the end of the film he basically says just you know just had a very nice life you know and that's <laughs> what there was to it um which I which I, I love I, I think it's really you know you, the film builds out this impression of him as just someone who is just incredibly lovely and well-meaning very very incredibly talented and that's all there was to it. And he had a, he was in love with his wife, and they had incredibly, you know, incredible long term marriage mm-hmm. that lasted all all throughout his career. And and he just did that, and and just led a very nice life. And, and on the one hand, I feel like that's amazing. On the other hand, I I don't know how that happens with someone who looks as sexy as he did <laughs> uh, during most of those early stages of his career. <laughs> and, and and the film knows this as well. There is, when when, when the film starts playing Live and Let Die, yep. and it is doing it deliberately over shots of 
of George Martin smoking a cigarette, yeah. looking every inch like J. Ian Fleming's James Bond. Yeah, yeah. And it's like how you know just sex on a stick, and yeah. he, and, and then it cuts to him just being very old. At the end of it, being like, <laughs> oh, I'm just a nice fella. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a stark contrast, but yeah, just it, it just seems like an amazing life that's well lived, and 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 actually the the documentary. I wonder if maybe it struggles a little bit to find something beneath the surface with him because that's all there is. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe it's not particularly looking for anything beneath yeah. the surface. But, but I mean, you know, uh, the, the the makers of this documentary would have one hundred percent known that that George and Judy, when they got together, George was married and they had and and Judy was a secretary at EMI and they had an affair. Scandal. I know. Exactly. It's not not mentioned at all in the documentary, is it? I know. I know. I'm I'm only now lifting the lid on this exclusive <laughs> story, uh, but um, it's, it's it's been covered up for all these years, and now we can exclusively reveal. No. Um. It, it, so I mean that uh, that is true. Now I mean, look, you're absolutely right to say that they then went on to have to be married for the rest of their lives and but you know there, there was a bit of scandal about that and I think there was a bit of scandal around EMI at that I think it might have affected George's career a little bit I think the higher-ups at EMI were not all that keen on on you know gentlemen having affairs you know or certainly gentlemen having affairs that people found out about you know yeah. yes exactly yeah. Oh, um, I thought it was all the rage <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and and they didn't get into that, but I don't think a film like that particularly needs to get into that. You know, I, I think do, documentaries these days sort of, I mean, they need sort of conflict and resolution in the same way that a that a sort of narrative film does. They need to have a bit more of a narrative in general. This is sort of fairly nuts and bolts presenting the events of his life, not in a particularly linear fashion, as we've as we've pointed out, but it's more or less just taking you through the greatest hits of what what the guy achieved. Mm. And perhaps like a sort of arena documentary doesn't need to do more than that. Although, as we discussed, maybe for the audience, it could have done with a little bit more detail. But it, it doesn't particularly... Ne- I suppose in terms of adversity, adversity that's been overcome, there's a bit of that with the Montserrat bits towards the end where it was sort of the studio that he built was sort of destroyed by the hurricane. And then he, um, so, you know, they basically had to abandon it and then he sort of raised money to build the cultural center in Montserrat, you know, so that is, that's a nice sort of like, you know, uh, Phoenix from the ashes kind of uh, story. But I mean, that is dealt with entirely in about six minutes, you know, Mm. (laughs) the whole thing. So, I mean, the, the film is not looking for conflict and resolution and maybe it doesn't really need to, you know. Uh, you're you're right. However, we should probably address the fact that as much as it clearly deliberately skips over this sort of potential for scandal early on in his career, um, it does address head on uh, what is potentially a bigger scandal, uh, which is obviously George Martin's martini making technique. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, as you know, I am someone who uh, is very passionate about making cocktails. Yep. What this film does at this point when it when it starts talking about live and let die, it very deliberately tries to make a connection between George Martin and James Bond for reasons. Yeah. And clearly the filmmakers have set up a camera in his kitchen and just said, make a martini, go on. Because we're going to talk about live and let die. So just make a martini and then mm. we can just uh, we can just edit that in at a point where he starts talking about James Bond and it makes sense. Yeah. And it, it does feel very contrived. Mm-hmm. And then George Martin proceeds to make the sorriest martini I've ever seen committed to camera. <laughs> He's very right in in saying that shaking a martini doesn't bruise the gin, which is a phrase that was adopted a long time ago that means nothing. He says what it does do 
um, with a wry smile is it makes it much colder. Yeah. Um, you can just, just do the same thing if you're stirring for longer, so it's fine. Right. What shaking uh, a martini does is dilute it more. Yeah. And also what you get, especially when you use the really bad straining technique that George uses for this martini, is you get lots of shards of ice in the drink, which mm. means that when he pours out his martini, it's very cloudy. Yeah. And what you want is a nice, clean, crisp martini. Yeah. But the worst the worst thing he does at all yeah. <laughs> completely with this martini yeah. is um, he then cuts off a little bit of a lemon peel. Yeah. Now, the reason why you do that is you cut off a bit of lemon peel and you squeeze the lemon oils out from that lemon peel over the drink to give it like a, a mist of citrus, okay, before you drop it in the drink. Yeah. His lemon is so ripe that he has cut off this scrawny bit of oh. uh, of peel. No, no. There's no oil left in that at all. That is just like a, yeah. a, a rancid section of lemon and yeah. drops it in, all whilst talking about the uh you know how to make the perfect martini yeah. and honestly it's one of the worst things i've seen in all of the films that we have covered for this podcast <laughs> right yeah and we've watched give my regards to board street yeah, yeah. he's embarrassed himself you're yeah. right would phil Spector have made a better martini you <laughs> would have overproduced that martini yeah do you think i mean but make, think of the should... layers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should have taken the martini off him given it to yes. phil Spector. like th- like three months later Given, given Phil Spector the uh, the constituent parts of that martini and said, here, put this together. I don't know about you, but I was you know watching this documentary and uh, when they go through some of the songs that George had a hand in producing before he met the Beatles, I, 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 I was surprised by how many of them I knew. Mm. Like, and this is from a uh, this is from a period that is. Uh, I, I don't tend to listen to music from this period a lot and some of these songs would have been covered and uh, I, I probably would have heard later versions of them yeah. um, but the originals were there and actually they're very famous songs and they're, yeah. they they have their own part in sort of I, I guess you know in, in our sort of cultural identity if you will and the nice thing is it's like he's sitting he's just sort of sitting in his chair in his house and they've brought these speakers um, which which they seem to be taking around sort of all the interviewees when they want to play them audio clips. And they look like the kind of speakers that you used to plug into your old Windows 95 PC <laughs> to get like slightly better sound. And the audio quality they're getting out of them can't be that good. But, you know, he's sort of sitting there listening to these songs. And, and one that comes on is what is like immediately recognisable as the theme tune to The Archers. And, um, it's, called, and it's called Barwick Green. And he's listening to, it and he and he sort of looks at the camera, or looks at the interviewer, and says, "The Archers, yeah, you know, as, as if you don't know, you yeah. know." And it's like because it's the most quintessentially British thing there is. Yeah, and I, I I think that the Archers theme has been re-recorded a couple of times, and so the version that you now hear on Radio Four is not the same one that George recorded. But the, there was a point at which <laughs> that he he produced and recorded like one of the most iconic. Uh, pieces of music associated with with Britishness in general, um, <laughs> and and he's just so casual about it. And I yeah. had no idea that that was the case at all. No, not like, at all. You know. But also, the film skips over it quite quickly. I think, like, yeah, like the film nowhere else in that section is the archers mentioned. No, apart from the way he casually mentions it as a camera, like <laughs> the archers. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. This is this is like one of the most recognisable themes. Ever right, right. <laughs> and, I mean, you would have thought they spent a little bit more time on that. Yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, it's it's sort of um, 
it suits a man who just seems to be kind of so self-effacing you know yes. it's quite it's quite a nice and again very british thing to make a documentary about a man who's made all these achievements in which like a lot of his achievements are just kind of glossed over because he's not the kind of guy who talks about himself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and actually like, it's it, so it, true the whole thing could be a documentary that's like 15 minutes long yeah exactly you know just where him and the beatles were just like oh then i met the beatles and, yeah we made some records uh, yeah, which yeah. were lovely i had a lovely time <laughs> and um nelly the elephant you know like stuff like that like <laughs> yeah. what, like what a weird I would never would have guessed in a million years that George Martin produced Nelly the Elephant. Yeah, and so you know, right said Fred by Bernard Cribbins yes. as well. You know, the, it, these are songs. I mean, like our, our generation, yeah, probably does know these a bit from them being like reused in adverts a yes. bit in the eighties or something like yeah. that. But also, like the sort of right said Fred song is something that like my my dad would sort of sing to to himself a bit if he was like doing some wallpapering or something would like make the joke of do you think that's what it is um, so, so so in our generation so we would have grown up in like the 80s mm. and we would have heard cover versions of those in say adverts yeah is that the equivalent of when John Lewis has this like soulful version of Half the World Away in their Christmas ads. <laughs> like, it's just it's the same pattern, isn't it? Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like tw- twenty or thirty years later, you're, you're just going to have these songs come up on adverts again, and that's how they sell products. Right. Yeah. Is, is Noel Gallagher a Bernard Cribbins for the TikTok generation? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's worth posing the question. <laughs> Um, so I don't know how you feel. Well, I mean, I don't even know how you, whether or not you think it's worth comparing it to the Brian Epstein story uh, in terms of two BBC Arena documentary episodes that we've now covered about Beatles adjacent people. But mm. I, I, I still sort of come back to this point on on this one that there's a clear difference in the story to be told between the the two people, and I think that this film is it's an easier watch because it's more modern. But also, there's sort of a, a a less of a clear narrative to to sort of cling everything to mm. uh, it, it in this. So, whereas the Brian Epstein story was probably told more dramatically mm. and was possibly a little bit more compelling yeah. uh, as a result, yeah. this is just a just a lovely old film about a lovely old guy, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean that 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 Brian Epstein story documentary uh, chose. Uh, a narrative approach and went with it mm. um and you know th- it, there are uh, questions to be asked about the sort of morality of the narrative approach it, it it took and about the sort of participation of like uh some of the talking heads um uh, but yeah no you're absolutely right like you that's not something it's not an accusation you could hang on this um it, it essentially it's it, it's it's celebratory is what it is mm. and, and quite rightly and, and actually a lot of the media that uh, was depicting George Martin, uh, you know, in the last sort of 20 years or so of his life was very celebratory. If you think about, there's another film called uh, In In My Life uh, about him. There's another, and there was, do you remember, it must have been commemorating some Beatles anniversary or other where there was an album of different contributors re-recording Beatles songs that George Martin was producing. Yes, Including, like, Jim Carrey doing I Am The Warriors. Yes, of course. Yeah, I remember seeing that footage a yeah, lot. Yeah, and, of course. And, and things like that. That was all just very, very celebratory. Mm. So he does seem to be uh, this um, figure who's just sort of universally loved. I mean, you never hear anyone say 
a bad word about him. No. Um, and um, and actually, it's sort of in that spirit that this film is made. Um, and there's no reason for it to be made in in any other spirit, really. But yeah, exactly. And and I think it's actually quite refreshing for us to be watching a documentary where there's no ounce of cynicism. Yeah. Uh, there's no. Um, there's no reason for us to sort of question motives or no. for anybody to be seen to be trying to steal attention or claim credit for anything that's mm. not valid. Yeah, it all seems very just nice and above board and um, hopefully perfectly in keeping with George as a character. So that yeah. would all make sense. But Apart from the martini. Apart from the martini, which is just atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe some of our listeners may have seen this and uh, think differently. Uh, if you are one of those listeners and you've seen this film, this documentary episode, uh, we'd love you to get in touch with us. You can reach us at Beatles Films Pod on all of the usual social media platforms. Um, you can also, if you have heard this episode and uh, have enjoyed listening to it, you could leave us a review or a five-star rating on your streaming platform of choice. Uh, otherwise, we will see you again next week for another episode. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.